You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to yet another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. And today's podcast is entitled Blues for a Red Planet. Mars, Environmentalism and Faith. On the 21st of February, a probe, a NASA probe, Perseverance, landed on Mars. And I watched the landing video and got rather excited. Uh, I've been a fan of NASA's for for many years. I can remember my mum collecting copies of National Geographic for me from the op shop and reading all about the um the viking missions and the early moon missions and so on and so i've before i was well not before i was an environmentalist but certainly from a young age science has been very important to me i think i've mentioned this early on in the series on a variety of levels now last week i reflected upon carl sagan's pale blue dot and questioned it and, and thought about it from an environmentalist point of view, which is what he was driving at, even though Sagan was uh, an astrophysicist and very big into the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and life and so on. So it might seem a little bit at odds for me to be so excited about missions to Mars when planet Earth is in trouble and we really need to be focusing on what's going on at home. Does that mean that we don't engage in these things, don't get excited in these things, and so on. So a couple of questions to start the episode with. Should we be spending money on this? That's kind of a standard question to ask, isn't it? And the usual things that people um, in the social justice movement will say, well, what about the poor? What about global vaccinations? What about environmental issues, our climate problem? Aren't we putting so much money into sending probes into space and there's talk about permanent bases on the moon and on Mars and so on? And isn't this very wrong-headed? Shouldn't we be spending the money where it's really needed? So that's one argument. Another one that I touched upon in my last um, episode was, does this kind of space probe and space exploration feed too much into what I've called beam-me-up-goddy techno-eschatology, by which I mean the idea that technology will rescue us uh, from the earth, or more properly, from the consequences of our actions. So it's the idea that perseverance is another step towards permanent settlements on Mars, and we might settle Mars one day because the earth becomes largely uninhabitable. And of course, that feeds into justice, justice issues as well, because who's going to be able to afford a ticket to Mars? Um, thinking about uh, Total Recall 
And I did want to title this episode, Get Your <clears throat> to Mars, but thought, well, it is aimed at Christians and I don't want to offend those who are offended by such language. But the idea that you could just spend a few credits or whatever the currency is and get a flight to Mars, well, that's not how it's going to work if that was a place that we would turn to as a kind of um, an out for what we've done to the planet. It would only be for the, the extremely rich. And dare I say too, the incredibly brave and or stupid, uh, given the current conditions on Mars. But, you know, looking into the future, it a settlement, permanent settlement may be possible. So is this kind of a techno-eschatology, which means to say, like the rapture that people project into the Bible, it's, it's not there, but like the rapture, is it a method of escape of our present condition? And the last one might be, is space exploration just a giant tower of Babel? So if you look at the story in the primeval history, as it's called, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you get this sense of an unfolding drama of human violence and dislocation and so on. And the Tower of Babel is an attempt to control the divine, a testament to human achievement uh, and technology. And it might we might accuse things like NASA's operations as being... Uh, a real sense of, well, look at me and look at what I can do and achieve technologically. Now, I, to briefly answer my own questions before we move on, it's a bit of that, in a sense, it can be. But nonetheless, uh, I don't think these these points are, are binding, and I'll address those as we go. Firstly, as a bit of a retort, have we become too blasé about science and engineering? And I know that, and I'll say this again later, the point isn't to get lost just in our own cleverness, but nonetheless, the minimum distance that we've observed Mars to the Earth, and of course that distance changes over time because both planets follow elliptical orbits about the Sun, the minimum distance between Mars and the Earth is 56 million kilometres. 56 million kilometres. That's a little bit longer than a trip to the shops. And when you think about the technology that's involved, the planning, the mathematical calculations, take into account the gravitational effects of many bodies in the solar system, and to rock up there on time and land more or less in the exact spot that you set out is altogether rather impressive. So we need to marvel at this, that we are at a level where we can produce technology and we understand things like the laws of gravitation and you can build sophisticated instruments to learn really new and interesting things about the universe in which we inhabit that we there's there's a line to be to be reached between human hubris and amazement at the things that can be done our wonder i think lisa sideris would say this I must have on the program at some point. Our wonder must ultimately be at the things around us, not merely at ourselves. But that doesn't mean I don't think that we can spend some time marvelling at the sorts of things that we're able to achieve. It's just not where you stop, that's all. Anyway, there are, of course, uh, famous examples of mistakes. The classic one was the, the Mars Climate Orbiter, which burned up in Mars's upper atmosphere. And this is... Sorry, Americans, but... All the engineering teams, bar one, were using metric. One team used feet and miles. So you can see where that led them. Uh, it just boggles the mind that the laws of physics are in scientific units. Uh, 
of meters and kilograms and so on, and yet the United States is one of those few countries that relies upon these old units of measurement, and it it was really costly in this case. But notwithstanding the fact that some probes have failed over the years, um, the fact that probes survive at all is, if you like, a quote-unquote technical miracle. And look, Mars is another planet. It's another planet that we've never stepped foot on. And here we are landing yet another probe to gain new and different and interesting and amazing pieces of information about the universe in which we live. Where's your sense of wonder at all of this? Now, this particular mission, the Perseverance uh, mission, is, has a number of scientific goals. I've, I'm going to highlight three. The first is they're collecting rocks uh, that they're going to store for a future mission to return. Again, we've not stepped foot on Mars. We've stepped foot on the moon and have been able to bring back rocks from the moon and tell us things about the geology and how the moon formed and so on. We haven't been able to do that with Mars yet, and that will be a feature of a future mission. But they're collecting and storing those rocks now. Secondly, another aspect of this mission is testing an instrument to turn carbon dioxide into oxygen. Now, if we are ever to settle on Mars, either permanently or temporarily, and that in itself is an amazing thing, and I'll talk more about that in a second, then you'll need oxygen for breathing, but also for propulsion systems. If you want to move on from there or get back home, then being able to produce your own fuel while you're there is, is significant. But the most exciting thing for me is that they've landed in this Jezero, if I've said that right, crater, where there's evidence for water flow in the past. So Mars has a warm and wet history. Water is the universal solvent, and I, like many scientists with much more knowledge in this area, am a carbon and a water chauvinist, which means to say that if you find water, um, then you find potential for life very strongly. If you find evidence for past water, well then is there evidence of past life. So Mars is too cold and too dry for life. Now carbon dioxide has frozen out of the atmosphere. So it's got a very thin carbon dioxide atmosphere and there's ice under the surface. So this builds on the fine tradition of past missions going all the way back to Viking, which found ambiguous evidence for life, which is probably more a function of the soil. And now this uh, probe is meant to look for evidence of microfossils, so the fact that life existed in the past. Now, Mars has long held um, people in fascination with it. Venus is about the same size as the Earth, the same kind of gravity, but we've never been really been able to see its surface until space probes and so on, because of the thick clouds, which we discovered were highly... Um, toxic to any form of life really and the surface pressure is intense and that was a run that is a runaway greenhouse environment whereas at the other end of things you've got mars which is frozen out but we can see the surface of mars and it's got ice caps and it's got weather like dust storms and so on i highly recommend to you episode five of cosmos by carl sagan where i've more or less pinched part of the title for this now giovanni schiaparelli believed he saw channels on mars um, this is in the late 18th century. And he thought that water ran across the, the surface of the dry planet in these, these channels. Unfortunately, however, uh, channels in Italian is canali. And when that came across to English, that was understood as canals. American Percival Lowell went looking for them in the period 1893 and 19, 
2008, and sure enough, he found them. Um, there are all sorts of issues about seeing, for example, which is the effect of the Earth's atmosphere on whether or not the image is sharper it shimmers. There was the whole issue at the time of peering into a telescope and then going back to your drawings and sketching out an image and doing away with your preconceived ideas of what it is you'd be looking for. And we now know, of course, that what was being seen was an optical illusion. And, and Lowell at the time was largely ostracised by the astronomical community for insisting that these were things that he could see. And as I said, we now know that Mars has had water channels in the past, but nothing on the scale that you could see from Earth on a telescope. It was just a, a combination of optical illusions and wishful thinking. But it gave rise to a great uh, amount of literature. So War of the Worlds, I don't know if you've ever read it. You may have seen the Tom Cruise remake. I saw the uh, earlier American movie. It was serialised in 1897, and then Orson Welles, no relation by the way, did it as a radio play and was able to frighten the blazers out of a bunch of Americans. And War of the Worlds, of course, is that aliens come to Earth, they're eyeing it off, and they try and wipe us out to claim our planet for their own because theirs was dying. And interesting enough, I read just recently that this was a reflection by Wells on what the British had done in Tasmania, where they attempted to wipe out the Aboriginal population there, which casts a really interesting and new and sombre and sober light on War of the Worlds when you think about it, that it was a direct critique and criticism of colonialism, which is an issue that we'll come back to a bit later on. The other favourite of mine is John Carter of Mars. So Edgar Rice Burroughs, who wrote Tarzan, uh, wrote this, and it's about a fellow who ends up, uh, a southern gentleman, who ends up on the surface of Mars. And again, uh, it's a planetary romance. He falls in love with a beautiful princess. He fights alongside uh, amazing uh, giant aliens. And... Um, in the very first book, uh, one of the first scenes he finds them, himself on is a, an atmosphere machine, a atmosphere factory, because Mars is dying and um, they're trying to retain an atmosphere and water flows and so on. So again, it picks up on the the the, the canals, the canals, canales, the the channels, and so it's if you like, Mars has been a constant source of reflection upon environmental perils, which makes it just that little bit more interesting and significant even if it's just in the the more conceptual framework than the the hard science of thinking about what is it that we're doing to our planet which is kind of ironic when you think about well in some people's imaginations it's a place that we could settle a dead world uh, as we kill our own interestingly enough just before the break one of the things we know about what you might call physical eschatology is that the sun is getting brighter over time so one day all other things being equal and for a christian that's like well where does divine intervention kind of stand in all of this but the sun gets brighter so earth becomes too hot with or without our influence or interference and mars becomes habitable again for a time tapping into that carbon dioxide and the water that's frozen so i think we have uh a healthy interest in Mars. I mean, it's possible to have an unhealthy interest, but I think there's a, a healthy interest in Mars. And in the second half of the program, what I want to do is look at some questions that this interest in Mars raises and, you know, come back to some of the questions I posed at the start about 
should we really be investing time in this and how does a Christian think about this? So thanks for listening to the first half of the program and I'll catch you in a few moments. Well, welcome back to part two. So we're looking at the Perseverance probe that's recently landed on Mars and asking some questions about uh, the areas of environmentalism and faith. So what's the first objection we might raise to why are we doing this? And I touched upon this at the start. And the first is the spending of money. How do we decide where money should be spent in a society? How do we collect that money? I mean, this touches on issues of of taxation, for example. And I know Christians who've said they think tax is theft. But they drive on roads. They go to hospitals. Um, There are a lot of things in different societies that are privatised. And in others like Australia, we have taxation to a level where we can fund things. Maybe not adequately all the time, you might argue. But you can go to the doctor here in this country and, and... claim it on Medicare. You drive roads because you pay taxes on those sorts of things. So it's taxation and where that money is allocated. One of the things that we need to be careful, though, is a sort of whataboutism. Now, don't get me wrong. Ending global poverty is one heck of a whataboutism. Uh, Fixing the environment, the climate, is one heck of a, a whataboutism. But It's always an issue, not simply of where you're spending the money on subject X and why it should be spent on ABC, but what about Z? Now, the Z in this equation, sorry if you're getting lost, is military budgets, for example. Now you'll say, well, hang on, we need to protect our borders and this, that and the other. But, And I'm not meaning to have a go at the United States here, but given that the ones who do the major funding of NASA, obviously, well, it's an American thing, The U.S. military in 2019, this is a figure I could get hold of, spent $732 billion on the military budget, which was greater than the next 10 countries. So you have to ask yourself what that says about thinking about what it means to be that nation. $21.5 billion was the 2019 NASA budget. 45% 45% of that, uh, which, you know, so that's roughly 10 billion, I guess, is on space flights, and another 32 on science. And that will be the underlying science of the probes. And I've known people who've worked at NASA doing research into astrophysics and so on. So ask yourself this is 32% of 21.5 billion and 45% on space flights are the same amount not such a bad spend when it seems rational and and reasonable to spend over 700 billion on defense more than the next 10 countries combined that includes china i don't know what do you think and as a christian is the pursuit of knowledge about the universe that we live in of a higher value than perhaps spending all that money on well 
I'll leave it to another time and to other people for now to think about why it is you might have a military budget that was so big and think about the sorts of things that's spent on. No, I'm not naive and think that we could do away with armies and air force and navy overnight. And therefore, there's a need for a military budget. Eschatologically, of course, I'm looking forward to that not being the case. But for now, there is something of a need thereof. But it does make me think that if space exploration is going to tell us more about the universe in which we live, and if there are, there's a useful kind of human population expanding and, and just people's desire to explore and to travel and so on, and I'll touch more about that in a second, that we might want to permanently live on Mars at some point, that all of these things can be far more peaceful in intent and execution than having a massive military. So let's think about keeping space for peace, not war. So this space force idea that cropped up in the Trump presidency is anathema and really just makes NASA an extension of the military budget, which is not what we want and not what I'm encouraging. Now, of course, space technology has been ambiguous for a long time. Robert Goddard played with fireworks when he was a kid and dreamed of sending people into space. But Werner von Braun was a member of the Nazi party, working on rockets to destroy London, in essence. And his technology was used as much for intercontinental ballistic missiles as weather satellites and space probes. So we need to reorient. We always need to think about, yes, technology shapes our thinking and our practice, but we can shape its use. Because something can be used to deliver a payload to kill people doesn't mean that you have to use it for that when you can use it for something else. And likewise, the budget follows. So I guess to finish off, tie off the argument before I move on to something else that the budget of NASA is small compared to the military spending. So surely if they spend a whole lot less on their military, yes, you could deal with climate and you could deal with poverty and viruses and all manner of other things without sacrificing the amount that we spend on space exploration. Now, Psalm 19 reminds us that science, astronomy in particular of sciences is doxological. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And sure again, you can get that from a space-based observer. If you can see the night sky and, and here in Melbourne, you can't see a great deal. Whereas when I've been places like Port Arthur in Tasmania, where you can see the Milky Way in all its glory, and there's doxology. But firsthand, imagine being on one of those other worlds. It's possible to have a divine encounter there. So that's the first thing. I don't think that space exploration is, quote-unquote, a waste of money. We need to reconsider our other um, priorities. Secondly, it's... The probe is, is designed to help us answer the question about how we got here. Not why, but how. Science tells us um, about the hows, not the whys. So does life happen everywhere? And again, I'm, we're moving from a particular theological perspective. I'll talk more about that in a second. Um, from the purely science point of view, 
life could have just begun on the earth or it could have begun on the earth and then in the collisions and all the material that was being ejected in the early solar system been cast out to Mars. Of course, with the sun being this massive great gravitating body, what happened if it began on Mars and was transported to earth and then really kicked things off? Or maybe in both locations. And of course, the obvious way to find that out is if you had a fossil with material that you could determine whether or not well, in fact, this is impossible, right? Uh, DNA from it to determine if it's the same structure. Of course, you'd want extant life. But, you know, there's those questions there to be asked. Now, of course, the, the, the question of intelligence is moot for Mars, other than in science fiction. We're just looking for primitive life or the evidence of it having been there previously, and that is fossils. If we're looking for intelligence, we, of course, need to look closer to home and our relationship with other creatures. So maybe going out to space prompts us to think about those questions again and then of course there is the numinous other by which i mean god but you could meet god on mars or at earth on earth but i do think that asking those questions should provoke us to to think about the parochial nature of our understanding of scripture it's a focus on this planet and our role but the universe is a much bigger place than the biblical authors knew about with their three-tiered universe and um you know the celestial dome no understanding of the fact that there'd be other planets. So it, and it's not an unhealthy thing to remind ourselves that yes, the particularly the creation accounts, but the Hebrew Bible and, and the New Testament too, were written at a particular time and place with a cosmology that we don't share. And so our theology needs to uh, move beyond their limited cosmology and our own as well. Um, we need also to, take care about some of the philosophical take-homes from the potential for life elsewhere. Our significance doesn't rest on our uniqueness, but on our chosenness, and that's the message of Psalm 8. So if we found E.T. tomorrow with you know, a little green man or grey man or woman or something else, uh, that doesn't mean that human beings aren't special. Um, this means we're not necessarily unique. Uh, another issue, I think, is that the fact that to explore is human. Now, they say that about one-fifth of people have a gene that makes them more adventurous and less risk-averse. I mean, we left Africa. Human beings began in Africa and spread out the entire planet. The issue, of course, is that once human beings had become settled in one place, the next generation who arrived engaged um, in chauvinism and violence. Can we think again about going into space and colonizing without being colonial? Well, Carl Sagan raises this in his episode on Mars and Cosmos, and he says, well, if we found primitive life there, then we should leave Mars alone. In other words, don't be colonial about all forms of life. But it seems that uh, Mars is a lifeless world, and we disinfect our probes, space probes, just in case. But does that mean that we've, it frees up to to visit Mars and to colonize it because it's a quote-unquote dead world? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, so at one sense, it's impossible to commit some of the sins of the past. But again, it, it should open up us to think about that very thing. And maybe there's some um, science fiction to be rewritten again that gets us thinking about colonialism again, that that. Uh, stain on the history of so many quote-unquote Western countries like my own. So it's an opportunity to rethink our approach to the other. 
and avoiding the us versus them. Because you could imagine that, okay, we discover that the converting carbon dioxide to oxygen works, that eventually we can settle the planet in domes and maybe terraform it. I'll get onto that in a second. What happens in a few centuries? Will it be Martians versus Earthlings? Will we have learnt nothing over centuries and centuries of violence? And I don't think settling Mars means is the same thing as abandoning Earth. It need not be. It raises the issue of, well, what point do we need to get the Earth in shape before we decide it's okay to go to Mars? And it comes back to the issues of, of how we spend money and being able to have more than one priority at once. The last thing is, is technology and our God complex. And I talked about this last time, possibly, about not confusing the image of God and being precisely God. I think the idea or the, the labeling of technology as idolatry is a complex critique. And if you look at the Hebrew Bible, for example, you've got the Tower of Babel. So the, the taking of pitch and making this huge tower, which was a a human-made mountain to control um, the divine. And then a whacking great boat that they talk about in the story of the ark. Now, I'm not saying precisely that either of those things existed literally, but it's the Bible talking about technology and asking the question, well, what, what suits divine purposes and what suits or fits purely human purposes? And so it's saying that Technology can be conceptualized in a number of different ways. Look, I need to read a bunch of Jacques Ellul, but that's the guts of it. And as I said earlier in the program, uh, technology is a path to wonder and not simply end in itself, which is not to say that we shouldn't wonder at the marvels of technology. Just don't stop there. Um, you don't look, peer down a telescope just so you can see your own reflection, for example. So making a new home, we talk about terraforming or geoengineering places like Mars by changing the atmosphere, introducing life like plants to photosynthesize, produce oxygen to warm the planet by absorbing sunlight. Then there's the issue of the lack of magnetic fields on Mars, which makes keeping an atmosphere difficult. So would we do that? Well, again, it comes back to, well, if the planet is lifeless and we felt we needed to do that to have uh, permanent bases, then maybe we might. But I would think we should learn from what's happened on the Earth where our mastery um, of our first home is incredibly limited and we're facing the, the revenge of Gaia, as it were. And the Bible is very clear, I think, on the limits of human mastery. And so could you terraform or geoengineer Mars in a way in which let the process run rather than even believing that we could control the outcome in a, in a precise sense? Learning our limits may or may not keep us at home. It's it's a big issue, and obviously it's a bit cheeky for me to lay bare the one of the biggest issues here from an environmental perspective right at the end of the program with a, a few seconds to go. But it, it really does open up a conversation about will we want one day want to engineer a climate? Will we have learnt by then um, how to do it properly? Or will perhaps we have learnt that it's the sort of thing that you shouldn't do, or at the very least, all you're engaged in is harm minimization. In other words, stop pumping the atmosphere full of greenhouse gases and thinking that we can engage in fantasies where we can finally tune the weather. It may yet be, however, that you can take something 
where there's virtually nothing and produce something of, of value for us at least. And that might be the future state of Mars. So I think perseverance is, is amazing. It's exciting. There are things that we're going to learn. And it may be a bunch of null results like, nope, there's never been any life on Mars. Um, we don't want to settle there, etc., etc. But unless you ask, you won't know. And the asking of these questions is not, um, it's not the opposite of faith. It's not incompatible with faith. We do need to bring a Christian ethical shape to all of these considerations, but it's time to allow these things to widen our horizons and not to simply engage in a small and limited and parochial theology because we don't have a small and parochial and limited God. And so in the 21st century, uh, in the age of space travel and space probes and human beings reaching out to the planets, we need a theology that's robust enough to deal with this and burying our heads in the sand and paying it no mind will not achieve that. So once more, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.